This week on the nonprofit news feed, well, we got some nonprofit news for you. We're talking about MLK Day drawn thousands, acquisitions that are classier than others, and some other news. Nick, how's it going? It's going good, George. How are you? Doing all right after a long weekend. Excited to get back to it. I know our email and uh, it all gets thrown off, right? When we when we miss our Monday check-in. So getting back on it. Absolutely. We did miss our Monday because we were closed for Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And that brings us to our first story, which is about MLK Day drawing thousands to community service across the country. So as I'm sure nearly all nonprofits are aware, yesterday was Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And um, as written out in our newsletter, across the country, from Des Moines to Portland to Charleston, everywhere in between, um, a tremendous amount of community service was happening, often in conjunction with local community organizations and nonprofits. And MLK Day is actually, I learned, the only federally recognized day of service. And I myself participated when I was in school. And yeah, it's a great thing. I think that it's kind of in the spirit of MLK, right? It's not just kind of getting a a holiday off from work, but it encourages uh, positive contributions to one's community. So it's awesome to see so many people taking advantage of this and giving back to their communities. Using on some of these articles, we see a return to the ideals, the ideals of what uh, Dr. King stood for in terms of, uh, you know, nonviolent protests and the way that they stood up uh, to people in positions of power. Uh, an interesting fact about King, he was actually arrested 29 times uh, for his peaceful <laughs> his peaceful protests in many ways. So uh, an amazing leader and even, even better when we can make it a day of service. All right. Our last story is less community-based and more corporate, <laughs> I would say. And this is that um, Classy, the donation fundraising platform, has been acquired by GoFundMe, the crowdfunding platform, in another major, major acquisition within the nonprofit fundraising space. So as it was reported by the Nonprofit Times, um, Classy was acquired by GoFundMe. Now, Classy last year, and they're just released numbers, in 2021, um, over $1.1 billion was raised on that platform. And since GoFundMe's creation, since its inception, has raised over $15 billion. So uh, the roll-up of these two platforms is pretty crazy. And this announcement comes on the heels of, George, we did this just last week too, um, every action, um, another fundraising donor donation management platform uh, was brought by a private equity firm. Blackbaud just bought another kind of corporate social responsibility tool called EverFi for $750 million. We are seeing the world of philanthropic and donor fundraising tools are just like consolidating like no one's business. What's your take on this? pendulum swing. And so we had a very fractured, fragmented nonprofit tech sector with regard to software. And, you know, it's switching costs are tough. So there were many groups that, you know, stayed with the one that they were with and, you know, features were kind of explored in various ways. And now, you know, the pendulum swings swings back to consolidation and especially as money, private equity dollars, and also uh, 
essentially inflation erodes cash on hand, cash in the bank. You want to put that cash to work a lot faster, maybe than in the past. So I think those pieces are working together here to consolidate. And hopefully what it leads to is better tools and more options, uh, albeit not as fractured, but better options for the all-in-one. How do I go to the uh, single source so I can you know, do a crazy thing called get a donor into a database and process financial transactions on an ongoing basis? So hopefully it will lead to more competitive pricing, though I, I do know that when you when you purchase, when you purchase a company like that, there's, you know, the clock is on. Your shareholders are saying, all right, what is the, the time to repayment on how much we spent? And that uh, doesn't mean giving away prices or big price drops. So we'll see. Watching. We're watching closely. George, I'll, I'll say my... Uh... Overused line. We'll continue to keep an eye on this one. We'll keep, we'll keep, you keep an eye on so many things. I don't know how you do it. We'll be, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. We'll be watching. <laughs> this week's sponsor, none other than Whole Whale, a digital agency helping social impact organizations build traffic and measure impact. However, they also have an amazing new tool, the inclusivity crawler, the inclusivity tool that helps you find language that may be offensive to some of your stakeholders and shareholders. It looks through issues of ethnicity, race, gender, health, wealth, religion, and a number of other isms, frankly, that maybe you didn't have in mind when you wrote that content last year, last two years, a decade ago. The inclusivity tool will go through a page or even your entire website if you need it and help you find language and replace that language with the kinds of words that will be welcoming. Inclusivitytool.com. Again, that's inclusivitytool.com. And now back to our show. Great. Going into our next story, George, this is an important narrative we want to pick out because I think it's not getting enough traction. But this is a story uh, based on reporting from the New York Times that a 2020 census memo So a memo produced by senior officials within the U.S. Census Bureau um, cites, quote unquote, unprecedented meddling by the Trump administration. We're not a politics podcast. We have no business in that. But the census has enormous implications for how federal resources are allocated, enormous implications um, for how we understand the demographics of America and respond to a whole variety of social issues. And this article is really striking um, because it shows that essentially the Trump administration, um, led by uh, Secretary of Commerce at the time, who was Wilbur Ross, a political appointee, uh, was pressuring the Census Bureau to speed up the count. And the idea is if they sped up the count, uh, if Trump won, he could then reapportion congressional districts um, using kind of, you know, kind of fidgeted with numbers, like inaccurate numbers, apparently to, you know, GOP advantages. Um, And the kind of the cool thing about this story is you had some bureaucrats producing these memos, basically saying, no, 
like not like we're not going to do that and just like staying the course. Um, but the issues, quote unquote, the issues involved around crucial technical aspects of the count, including uh, privacy of census respondents, um, the use of estimates to fill in missing population data, pressure to take shortcuts to produce population totals quickly, um, and political pressure on um, programs that we're using to seek and identify unauthorized immigrants, um, which of course have enormous implications both for the count as well as how we respond and understand um, the needs of our communities, right? Uh, so this was an article about how we dodged a bullet. Bureaucrats within the U.S. Census Bureau stayed the course and um, were able to kind of parry this uh, attempted political influence. But man, George, this is crazy. And I think it kind of shows like how vulnerable, critical aspects of how we, in this case, understand our country. Um, it's real easy to just lean the scales a little bit. Many things scary about a power that has an agenda in this way. Coming back to why it's important for nonprofits is that the totals of population directly affect how, you know, not just districting, but the appropriation of funds and justification for funds and the servicing of people. Quite simply put, if for whatever reason you're in an urban center and I don't know, they say, you know what, only a third of you actually live here or, you know, a third less live here. That means fewer resources for education, for hospitals, for infrastructure, for social supports uh, that happen. And so, Sure, there's this sad gerrymandering game, which is played on both sides. But when you actually screw with the numbers and threaten to screw with the numbers, you actually have just real people in the real world actually impacted by the lack of infrastructure support and funding. Uh, we need to know where the populations of our country are so that many nonprofits and social services can support them. So. Uh, something to, to always watch and, you know, diving into census data. I always, uh, I'm, I'm excited to see that because it's also used for when we work with, with clients and estimates about uh, what is your total addressable market? How are you reaching them? And, you know, maybe where are they moving? So thanks, Nick. Absolutely. And, and George, one, one thing I just wanted to call out is I'm based in New York. Now there are entire communities in New York that are largely immigrant and, also largely undocumented. These communities have been hit by the pandemic the hardest. And you have to know who you're caring for when you're caring for these communities. And like in attempt to, to mess with how we understand the people in our own communities, all of whom are worthy of care during this pandemic is really frightening. Um, so. And, and just kind of underscores how important um, understanding this data correctly is. And it's still rolling out. These data, it says, according to census.gov, uh, next release date of national state population demographic will be coming out in December of 2022. So it takes a while, uh, an incredibly long time to count, tally, and report these data. Good stuff. <laughs> All right, uh, moving along, this is a story from the Star Tribune, and it talks about um, how Twin City nonprofits um, are facing a critical shortage of volunteers amid the Omicron surge. This is uh, a story and thread we've been following for a non-time. We've talked about um, how nonprofits are 
uh, losing staff essentially to to rising wages and and competition there, particularly nonprofits that um, are are community oriented. But the flip side of that is um, if the staff shortage is a problem. Uh, I imagine the volunteer shortage is even more significant a problem, especially for organizations that rely heavily on volunteer, in-person volunteer service. Um, so again, just kind of highlighting that um, for, for some nonprofits, particularly those like on the front lines of um, community response, pandemic response, whatever it may be, uh, is an especially tough time for them. The reports in here obviously are Anecdotal, however, in in some total, they they lead to what looks like a large decrease in volunteering by in, for these groups at least half half of what they would expect for number of people volunteering. Now, mind you, we are you know months years into the pandemic, so these effects you're like, wow, uh, why is it why is it happening now? And I think it is a you know combination in the surge of COVID, the, you know, general labor shortage, and uh, then potential other effects of uh, the economy. Uh, it's hard to say why, but the net effect is that many nonprofits, many community-based organizations may be struggling. So if you are planning on using volunteers, finding volunteers, I think extend that timeline, work harder, and think about other uh, ways to maybe be incentivizing and bringing the story to light because it's happening in these like small pockets and areas, but it is happening. Uh, we chase down, well, I'll try to go get um, Greg from Volunteer Match uh, to come in and, and talk to us about what's going on. Put that in my notes. <laughs> Absolutely. And if you need or are looking to volunteer, volunteermatch.com. Yeah. This ad brought to you by <laughs> Volunteer Match. Greg, if you're listening, come on. We miss you. Without a doubt. All right. Our next story, another tough one. Um, this is a really great investigative piece, for lack of a better word, feature journalism piece from the Chronicle of Philanthropy um, at philanthropy.com. And it talks about how nonprofits help fuel the opioid crisis. And it's a lengthy article, but it's worth reading. Uh, it touches on a lot of different threads about um, the connections between corporations and corporate foundations and nonprofits. But the overall gist here is that uh, nonprofits um, in particular were kind of not completely innocent in, in helping, um, but inadvertently uh, in a way, um, corporations that were trying to increase the use of opioids um, within the United States. So it talks about various organizations um, uh, promoting treatments for pain, for example, and of course, Many Americans live with with chronic pain, and that that that's not to be taken lightly. But often, um, these nonprofits uh, are, are essentially accused of working alongside the corporate uh, opioid drug manufacturer community um, to kind of push drugs, and that they are a part, unfortunately, of of the tragic problem of, of course, uh, the opioid epidemic in America. Um, it's worth reading. Uh, it's a lot of different threads. It talks about uh, congressional investigations. It talks about legal investigations, um, the flow of money through foundations. Um, but uh, I think the takeaway here is that we need to be vigilant and nonprofits need to be vigilant about um, the subtle or inadvertent power behind um, certain types of money. 
uh, coming to organizations because it seems like here, um, at least it was used to increase corporate profit um, potentially to the detriment of uh, Americans. Yeah, the quote in here, over the course of two decades, opioid manufacturers uh, reportedly awarded more than $60 million, $60 million to nonprofits. And that's based on the 2020 Senate Finance Committee investigation. And frankly, you know, money finds a way. However, on this episode of not all nonprofits are doing good, you know, I bring you the opioid crisis. The 501c3 is a tax vehicle. And if you have $60 million and you're trying to accomplish something and you can create a nonprofit, push it through that vehicle. However, if you are a nonprofit out there, you are as much responsible for the money you take as the money that you do not take. And sometimes the latter can define you even more so. So it's a, you know, it's a reminder. I mean, it's hard to say early on if you were fully aware of what the crisis would become. And it's easy with the lenses we wear now to look at it. But in the latter years, I would say it was pretty darn clear that, you know, this, um, this was killing Americans at a staggering number. And so uh, to that end, take a look at your books, take a look at who you accept money from and, and what strings uh, are attached to it. And again, not all nonprofits are good. So uh, I think it's good to see stories like this and to, to segment and think about that. Yeah, it's an important narrative to think about. Um, on the flip side of that, however, um, nonprofits potentially doing harm um, when it comes to public health. We have a story about nonprofits doing good when it comes to public health. And this is a story reported by Gothamist.com, um, a story local to New York City. And it's about um, a look inside, quote unquote, New York City's supervised drug injection sites, the first in the nation. So this is a project that was greenlit by the de Blasio administration, um, former de Blasio, <laughs> uh, Bill de Blasio, mayor of New York. Um, but the idea is that these injection sites are set up where folks who have um, addiction problems, uh, whatever drug it may be, um, can inject under supervision to prevent overdosing. Um, New York, just like many cities and elsewhere in America, have problems with uh, addiction and, and drugs. And um, this organization kind of just, I think, cuts through a lot of the kind of taboo around talking about drugs and saying, listen, there are people who are dying from overdoses and we can potentially save lives. And um, that's what they're doing. Um, since this article was published and the site went up, um, it says they've already um, intervened in and reversed 43 overdoses. Um, so these are 43 people who uh, would have overdosed, um, but because of supervision, um, those overdoses were reversed. Uh, as you can imagine, it's a little bit controversial. It's getting some political um, blowback. But I think in general, it's a interesting out-of-the-box approach to uh, addressing a problem as it is. Yeah, this is the type, look, doing the same thing and expecting a different result gets you not very far, as the quote goes. And frankly, our war on drugs has done one thing, and it's incarcerate black and brown people at staggering numbers while also letting 
people that need actual support die. And, you know, in this article, they note that they have called 911 a incredible whopping number of zero, zero times, zero times did they have to call for services. So, you know, I'd say check the assumption that, oh my gosh, it's going to be a hotbed of violence or destroying, like all it did was save 43 lives and say, hey, you know, instead of this war on humans, uh, let's approach it with empathy and intelligence and, you know, critique the Blasio for what you want. I think I'm, I'm happy to be covering this story. It came out a little while ago, but I'm, I'm looking for these moments of how do we do things differently that serve each other and nonprofits being in the mix uh, are absolutely on the forefront of saying, how do we pioneer and test these things so that maybe they can be adopted even more deeply by uh, the local governments and communities where, you know, drugs are, are, are killing people unnecessarily. Because by the way, you know, once you are going there, once you are getting clean needles, once you are able to uh, see professionals and have the option of every time you want to do this in a safe environment, guess what? There are materials, there's resources for, by the way, getting off of these uh, these substances. And uh, that, that doesn't happen um, when you push it into the, the corners of society in unhealthy ways. So I'm, I'm very interested in watching this develop uh, as uh, a mechanism to protect Americans. Yeah, it seems like even elsewhere across the country, there's interest in adopting this type of model um, by other, other organizations. So I imagine that... Um, It'll it'll spread something, a narrative to follow. Interesting to see how this will all pan out. George, how about a feel-good story? Yes, please. Um, in the the spirit of collectively as a country acknowledging that Betty White's time on Earth was in fact not long enough, we are following up this week with yet another Betty White story. And this is a story from local CBS17.com. Um, but the idea is that a local pet adoption nonprofit um, is honoring Betty White with a donation challenge. And it seems that a lot of other nonprofits are kind of uh, adopting this challenge. And of course, Betty White was a phenomenal supporter of animals and animal rights. And it seems that there's a little bit of kind of like a grassroots moment where um uh, animal shelters and organizations are raising money in honor of Betty White's birthday. Um, so just kind of like a cool continuation of uh, something that she, Betty White was really passionate passionate about and in true Betty White fashion, uh, continuing to wor- make the world a better place even after leaving it. A great way to remember an amazing woman. Find a local shelter, make a donation, support some pets. All right, Nick. Thank you so much. Let's get back to our week. Let's get back to it, George. Talk to you later. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to Greg Thomas Music.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 